many individuals try to find success on a daily basis. But what defines this success? Where does it come from? When you find a passion in your life and pursue this passion, everything can come together to form success. This is Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. Our guests will motivate you to take the next step to your success. Now, here's your host, David Wallach. Good morning, friends. I'm excited to be back with our weekly show, Taking Care of Business. Our guest today um, is far from us. Uh, He's joining us from Europe. Uh, To be exact, he's in Tallinn, capital of Estonia. Our guest is Dimitri Tuxer. Um, Good morning, Dimitri, or should I say good evening? Afternoon and morning to you. (laughs) What time is it in Estonia right now? 5 p.m. 5 p.m. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, I'll uh, do a short introduction uh, about uh, Dimitri and uh, tell you a little bit from his bio. Uh, Dimitri immigrated with his parents from Ukraine to Canada when he was nine years old. Um, After completing his high school studies, Dimitri joined the University of British Columbia and graduated the Sauter School of Business with commerce degree doubling in major, double in majoring, double majoring in management information systems and marketing. Dimitri financed his education by door-to-door sales and recruiting other students to his sales force. His book selling business generated over $1 million per year. And by his third year as a student, he bought his first house in Vancouver. By the way, did you sell the house? Because now it's yeah, a good time to sell in Vancouver. 2013, yeah. Uh, too early. It was a good year. It was a good sale. I was happy. I was very and he, happy. <laughs> and he graduated the University of British Columbia debt-free. Dimitri knocked on over 40,000 doors. Again, 40,000 doors in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and other cities, including some of celebrity doors uh, where he could pitch to them at the door, which probably was a great experience. After taking some time off traveling the globe from Jamaica all the way to Japan, Dimitri came back to Calgary and in 2010 founded LGFG Fashion House, selling suits to corporate Calgary. In its first full year, LGFG Fashion House revenues were nearly a million dollars. Today, the company sells across the globe in Canada, Europe, China, Australia, South America, with clients in more than 20 countries and about 70 employees. Dimitri is married and has two kids, a daughter. She's two years old, right, Dimitri? Yeah, that's correct. And a son that was recently born. How old is he now? He's about one, so they're, they're, about, they're 16 months apart. Okay. Once again, Dimitri, good evening and thank you for being our guest. And uh, Dimitri, uh, our listeners love to learn about the person before we jump into business. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about uh, who you are and where you come from. So, you know, we mentioned that you came to Canada from the Ukraine at uh, age nine. Uh, mm-hmm. What are the memories you kind of cherish from childhood in Ukraine? Uh, man, that's an interesting question. Probably just going to my grandparents' house. Uh, my grandparents, three of them are still alive, living in Vancouver. Um, but, you know, visiting my grandparents in the various regions of Kiev, I remember that very well. Um, I remember I finished the, the second, like, I was the Soviet Union when I was there, right? So I never learned Ukrainian. We had to speak Russian in school, and we had to recite poetry uh, for Lenin. Like, this sounds super ancient, but it wasn't that long ago. But, like, I had to memorize, the, you know, like, all the stuff, and my report cards at school had the like pictures of Lenin on them, you know, the great Soviet leader, right? Um, so I remember that quite vividly. I remember Chernobyl um, yeah. because because my grandmother took me, 
you know, to sort of away from Kiev, like somewhere like a few hundred kilometers away um, during that time. I remember that pretty vividly. I was, I think, like six or so. But I do remember that very vividly. Um, yeah. And um, by the way, do you still have family in Ukraine? Yeah, some distant, like, second cousin type family. Not, nobody, like, in a very immediate circle. And, and are they all okay and healthy after the, the yeah, troubles? Yeah, didn't? yeah. I mean, pretty much, yeah, everybody's fine. Um, our family, sort of the moment that, like, the Soviet Union disbanded in 92, like, everybody got out. So um, when my dad's side of the family all went to New York, and they're still there. And then my mom, uh, then my mom's side of the family actually... Well, some of them were already gone. They were in France. And then our family, we went to Vancouver with my dad and sort of our immediate family is all Vancouver-based now. I see. And, um, you know, you immigrated to Vancouver with your parents. Um, what are your first memories and impressions as a 9, 10, 11-year-old from the new country, new language, new friends? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a really crazy memory. Like, my memory, I remember everything. So generally in life, like, I just remember things. So I remember the airplane ride over. Um, seeing my first Etch-a-Sketch, I remember that. I was, like, so fascinated with this. Because, you know, like, toys back in the Soviet Union weren't, like, very, uh, you know, very Western. So the Etch-a-Sketch was super impressive for me. I was like, that's cool. I remember seeing, like, I, I remember going to the bathroom when we landed in Vancouver and, like, seeing our urinal. I was like, what is that? Yeah. And it had, like, a urinal, and had a urinal puck in it. I'm like, why is there a blue thing in there? Like, it was just, like, kind of new, right? Um, and I think the other thing that was interesting is, you know, you take the ride from the airport and you go through Richmond. Um, we were staying at my dad's aunt's house when we arrived, and you can see, like, houses, like, just a, a suburb, like, a standard suburb you would find anywhere in Canada, but I had never seen a suburb before, you know, like, everything was sort of, for me, was a big apartment buildings, so I remember sort of thinking, like, wow, people live in individual houses, that's kind of cool, um, so I have those memories. I remember my first day of school where I didn't speak English, um, which, you know, which was kind of interesting because I was put in an ESL class, I was really ahead in all the... Like, they were doing math, and it just seemed childish to me. You know, it was grade three already. You know, it was, like, the stuff they were doing in grade three in Canada compared to the stuff that we were learning in grade three over there. You know, over there, we were doing, like, long division in grade three. And by the time we came to Canada, it was, like, grade three still doing, like, you know, some basic addition and subtraction. I was, like, two years ahead. So, um, but it was fun sitting in class. In my English class, I remember it was Mrs. Buick, and that's, I remember her name. I don't remember <laughs> I, I didn't speak any English at all, so we were just sitting there nodding along most of the time. And then, um, you know, with the, but when you're a kid, like within a year, you're you're good to go. So, yeah. How did the kids uh, accept you? Um. Any hurdles? Any you know the foreign guy that doesn't speak English? You know, honestly, the first you know elementary school was fine. It was a little tougher later. Like my parents put me in like a private Jewish school, um, mm -hmm. which was a little bit demographically wealthier, and obviously. Um, you know, all the Soviet kids that immigrated, there was a small minority of us, like in every class, there was two, three or four, um, were different. You know, we weren't like, we were probably, we were, we wouldn't have to pay to be there. Let's put it that way. Right. Like they're like, here you go, you guys, you know, you can go for free. So that was a little bit more challenging because I think we, you know, kind of formed our own little subgroups. So we didn't really fit in with the rest of the kids too well. Um, you know, they had a very different demographic background and upbringing. Yeah. Um, And, and I think the other thing is, too, you know, like I kind of went through elementary school and then I went to high school in Vancouver and I sort of in Churchill at first, which is a very central high school in Vancouver. It's sort of like in the city. And there weren't I mean, everybody there was an immigrant. Right. Like there was Chinese kids, there was Korean kids, Indian kids, like everybody was from somewhere else. So that was OK. And then we moved to a suburb, which was primarily like a 
you know, like a white suburb, like upper middle class suburb. And we were living in a townhouse there. And then that was a lot more challenging because, you know, I, I'd sort of grown up in Canada. I spoke fluent English and everybody was named, you know, Nick or Mike. And then there was a Dimitri. And so, <laughs> and so I remember like graduating high school thinking like, man, I think most of the kids don't think I speak English, which was really weird. Like that feeling, because that, you know, there I was definitely an outsider. No question about it. Um, so let me ask you a question, one question about uh, school and, and then going with uh, the question. So if I call today um, any of your uh, classmates or teacher, whether it's uh, junior high or high school, and ask them, so what do you think about Dimitri? What, what do you think they will say? Uh, they would say probably super smart, like just they would say that because I did very well in school. Um, they would also say highly competitive. Um, I was just, you know, I, I got into a lot of trouble at school. Um, just because, like I said, I was an outsider, especially in that sort of, you know, grades nine through 12, where I was kind of the Russian kid, even though I'm not Russian, uh, but, <laughs> you know, um, but no, they would say I was definitely an outsider, very combative. I mean, I got suspended from school a few times, um, pretty much every year, including a lot of grade 12, just because I would always fight back. Like I just, I, I got, you know, I got picked on because I was the outsider, but I'm the kind of guy that like, um, I don't like being bullied. And I just, I just, I have like that sense of personal pride i'll stand up for it and uh so they would definitely say you know smart but but very combative somebody that really doesn't mind conflict and will and will stand up for himself and um, so, so what was the best story that you got expelled from school you really want to know not just me everybody that <laughs> listens to you wants to know <laughs> i've never been expelled i was suspended right suspended sorry um well let's see um there were some bullies that i really didn't like and i, I didn't really have any defense against them because there was more of them there was of me and you know a couple of my friends and stuff we were sort of the outcasty kids you know it is what it is um and then one summer uh to get back at them because we couldn't use any like actual direct means to get back at them physically like if they wanted to beat us up they beat us up and we ran um, I learned Flash, like the Flash is like the, was the online, like how to make like movies online. Yeah. And we made like this entire, um, movie series, six episodes sort of depicting their lives. It was not, it was not, let's put it this way. It was not a pleasant depiction of what we perceived their lives to be like. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, but what happened was, so we, and we spent all summer, you know, like, and we, and it was like Flash and it was pretty advanced stuff. Like there was everything. I mean, there was, it was a six part movie and. Um, we developed it and stuff. And I said, you know, this can never get out. Like I said, this can never get out because we would get our butts kicked so hard for this. Um, you know, you can imagine the kind of stuff that was on it and it had good production value for the, you know, for 2001, it had good production value for online stuff. And I'd been getting into computers, you know, I, I went to university the following year for management information systems and which is like, you know, I was doing computer science courses with business. So anyways, um, so I had a friend in a different high school. And I said, man, you know, we've made this thing, you got to see it. So I sent it to him over ICQ, remember ICQ back in the day, yeah. um, the great Israeli developed uh, messenger system before all this. So I sent it over to my friend in Vancouver and he's like, man, this is so funny. And, and I, it was just one friend and there was, at the time it wasn't like we were not posted anywhere because, you know, we didn't want it to get out and it wasn't listed anywhere as a private link, the whole thing. I show up my first day in grade 12, my very first day and I'm like putting some stuff in my locker. And there are some kids talking and they might be like grade nine or 10. And they're like, oh, did you see that? And they start talking about this thing and they're laughing. And I'm thinking, oh, no, that's like the thing I made. How, did the, how in the world would they get their hand? This is crazy, right? Um, and then literally like all day I'm hearing people talk about this movie and I know it's my movie. And I'm like, what is happening? So anyways, 
what had happened was I sent it to literally one friend in a different school, like, uh, you know, in the kind of central Vancouver, and I was living in South Delta. Um, and that friend happened to have made friends with a kid that summer that had transferred from our school to their school, like literally over the summer. And so when that kid saw the link that I had sent to like one friend, and it makes <laughs> sense that they became friends because this is my friend, so he would make friends with the other guy. The guy goes, hey, I know the people in this. And so, you know, he sent it to one friend back at our school, and it literally spread around the school. So um, for Thank my sake, what's that? Sorry, go ahead. So for, so anyway, so obviously some people were not very happy about that. So for my for my own safety, I was suspended the entire first week of grade 12. Perfect. <laughs> the entire, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. And the entire. But, but, but the cool part about it is, you know, like, um, and so we took it down immediately, like, because they, you know, it got kind of bad. They were getting, like, the police involved. They're like, we're going to, you know, we put the stuff. At the time, dinner was very new. Nobody really knew the stuff, you know. Anyways. Um, so we took it down immediately. Nobody else saw it after that. No, like, the staff of the school or anything like that. But the coolest memory about it is, you know, like, I kind of thought, I was like, okay, well, this is going to be a tough year in school. I'm sitting in, like, like one of my classes and the, like, you know, in, in a grade 12, like, the cutest girl is, like, sitting next to me. And she's one of the cool, popular girls, you know, and, like, would never, ever talk to me there, like, ever. Um, turns to me, this is when I'm back, and she goes, this is a few weeks after I'm back from my spin, she goes, you know, I never got a chance to see that movie. Like, can I come over and watch it if you still have <laughs> somewhere? And I was just like, wow. Like, you know, maybe there's something to this thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk later about bullying. You don't like bullying and you, you like to fight back. Uh, and, and I appreciate that. Um, uh, you know, you, you kind of describe yourself as a, as a big hockey fan. When did you pick up uh, hockey in Ukraine or after you moved to Canada? No, it was after I moved to Canada. I saw Curtis Joseph playing, and I was like, I want to be a goalie. So, And how, how are you as a goalie? Um, I think I'm okay. I'm, you know, I have a hockey game after this. So, <laughs> Well, I think the Flames are looking for a new goalie for the next season. Well, I, I don't know if it was funny, but like um, my wife became very good friends with the former Flames goalie wife because they were neighbors of ours in Calgary. And uh, um, yeah, so I got a chance to sort of hang out in the family room and watch some games. And it was really a fun experience for me. Um, but but yeah. he's a better athlete than I am. And if he can't be there, I can't either. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So um, when you were at uh, UBC at the University of British Columbia, did you do any other curriculum or just uh, selling, door -to -door, uh, selling books door to door? So, any other so, activities, social or non-social? So basically, like, so what happened in, in the last couple of years of high school, um, kind of leading into universities, I became a competitive video game player. Um, so I would play uh, real-time strategy games online with, like, you know, Koreans at, like, 4 in the morning kind of thing. Um, and I became really, really good. So I was, like, number one ranked in Canada in, like, one real-time strategy game and uh, 17th in the world. So that was eating up a lot of my time even going into university. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, like I probably, I got early admittance into UBC, like, I don't know if they still do that, but if your grades are good, you get like after first semester at school, you get a guaranteed admission, which I got. So the last two semesters of grade 12, I basically um, didn't go to class that much. I just played video games and got really, really good. And that was sort of my thing. So I did that all the way through my first year university. Um, and then, um, and that was eating up like a ton of time. And it was just very not conducive to studying because it was like, you know, tournaments at like four in the morning, three in the morning kind of thing. Um, and then I kind of wanted to find something that would take me out of my shell and, and put me in front of more people rather than being, you know, locked into my, locked in my kind of like video game domain, right? Yeah. Um, 
so you graduate university with two degrees, with, with majoring in two degrees, uh, with a commerce degree, sorry, majoring in marketing and management information system. And so did you think about continuing selling books or joining the corporate world and get a job? Well, I sold books just because it was so profitable for me. I sold books for another, uh, I, I took five years to graduate because I did co-op. Um, so I did like, you know, a year of work term of which the summer was selling books and the other time I was writing software. Um, and then I took a full year after, after university, after graduating, and I went back and I sold books. I recruited uh, students at the university uh, up until the summer. And then in the summer, I went and I sold books again. It was just, I mean, I was making, you know, like over, well over $100,000 a summer selling books door to door. So um, it was just like for me to step out of that and go into the corporate world, I knew I'd be taking a pay cut. So I wanted to put some more money away. So I did that. I see. And um, so a few years um, go by and you take uh, some time to travel the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did you travel? Uh, I mean, it was kind of like on and off for like a year. I see. And uh, was it just because you needed a break or you kind of needed some uh, air, fresh air and wanted to think about what's the next step in your life? Uh, probably both. And uh, my last question before we go into commercial break is, so when was that aha moment that you said, I'm going back to Calgary and I'm starting, starting my fashion uh, house? I did two corporate jobs sort of uh, for a few months each. And both times I think I realized that, you know, working in a corporate environment, I was not a good fit for it because I would always have, I always wanted to win. Like, you know, and I sold books door to door and I wanted to win. Like I wanted to be the best. I Got into the corporate world. I had a first a sales consulting job for a few months. I was living in Dallas and LA. It was an American company that recruited me, basically running selling workshops for other companies and selling the service. Um, but I just didn't jive. Like I always had new ideas. I always had new things I wanted to bring forward. And I felt like, um, you know, a lot of times I was just being held back. And then the same thing happened to me when I came back. I was in Vancouver, took a corporate job, same thing. And then after 10 months there, it was like, you know, I realized if I needed, if I wanted to succeed and, and, and feel fulfilled, I had to be my own boss. It's just, I could not fit into, I, I just couldn't be fit into an office. I was just way too, um, way too, you know, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is. ADHD? Possibly ADHD disruptive. <laughs> I, would say the word, I would say the word is disruptive. Uh, so, perfect. So, yeah. Um, so we're approaching our first commercial break. Uh, make sure uh, to open a new tab and check Dimitri's company website. It's www.lgfgfashionhouse.com. We will meet you here on the other side of the commercial in two minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-346-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I-Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with our guest, Dimitri Takshur, President and CEO of LGFG Fashion House. Uh, before we jump into uh, business questions, uh, Dimitri, I want to, I don't know if you remember, but I want to remind and, and explain how I met you uh, for the first time. So you called me out of, uh, I think it was either a referral or LinkedIn referral or a Facebook referral, and you were persistent on the phone uh, and until I gave up. I had to give up. Um, being a salesman myself, I, I, I enjoy, uh, you know, playing the game until I realized, you know what, the guy's doing something right, Let him, let's invite him in. And do you know your name at our office? How we call no. you at our office? I, I, this will be intriguing. <laughs> the man with the yellow shoes. So your okay. first time arriving at our office, and I have a seat in a bullpen, and we have about 30 some employees in our office here, and you come to take my measurements, and and you come with a blue suit and yellow shoes. And everybody at my office goes, the guy with the yellow shoes. So that's your name here, by the way, the guy okay. with the yellow shoes. Um, but now let's go get serious. Uh, now that our listeners kind of uh, got to know you on a personal level, let's continue and, and talk about your entrepreneurial life and take it, uh, take it the, to business. Mm-hmm. When, when I did read your bio, I was really amazed with the number of 40,000 doors. Uh, mm-hmm. h- how do you do 40,000 doors? It, it, it's tiring. It's, it's exhausting. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's a, it was a summer program that was run out of the U.S., and they recruit students to sell basically like a condensed form of an encyclopedia door-to-door, um, which you wouldn't think would be a big selling product. In the, you know, I, I sold until 2008. Um, you wouldn't think, you know, 2008 people would buy books door to door like that, but oh, they did. Um, and you know, how do you do it? We were working, uh, you know, the full summer from the day that exams ended until, uh, basically the day before school started, 
we would do it in a different city. So even though I was from Vancouver, I would come to Calgary for the summer. I would go to Toronto or Ottawa for the summer. So we were away from family and friends. It was like a boot camp, like an army almost. Then we worked six days a week, eight in the morning until 10 p.m., knocking on doors all day, nonstop, six days a week, uh, you know, 14, 15 weeks of the summer. Um, There's just nothing else. It was just that. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason you did it in other cities, not your own uh, home turf? Well, the company that recruited us would say, hey, you know, this is good for you to show that you relocated for the summer to show prospective employers in the future that you're willing to relocate. Um, I think mostly just to eliminate distractions. Like it was just a very difficult mentally, physically too, but mentally it's a very strenuous job to be, you know, when you're knocking on hundreds of doors a day, you're getting a few sales here and there, but it's just rejection all the time. Right? You're just getting rejected. And, you know, if you're by your home and there's people that are, you know, your friends are going out having a good time, partying, whatever they're doing, it's probably very... Um, you know, you probably kind of want to not do the book selling thing, right? So that that helped. <laughs> I see. Uh, you you just mentioned in your answer the word rejection, uh, which yeah. in sales is a big thing. So, um, what have you learned from this experience of knocking door to door and getting so many rejections? What did you learn how to handle rejection or how to accept rejections? Well, I mean, I think you know, like there's a different mindset between successful people and unsuccessful people, right? Um, like when you get, when, let's say you have a number like a hundred, right? And you get 99 no's and one yes. The unsuccessful people hear 99 no's. They just hear no 99 times. But that successful person, all he hears is that yes, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that, yeah. Go ahead. That'll be one part of it. Another part of it, you know, and, I, and this is something that was very uh, interesting for me is I knocked on doors in very low income areas like social housing and I've seen how they treat salespeople. And I've knocked on doors in high-income areas. Like, I know you live in Discovery because, well, you're a bit north there, but sort of in that area. And, I, you know, I sold a ton of your neighbors. I remember even going to your house when I went to your house to show you, like, suits and stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, I sold this guy. I sold this guy. That, you know, Wolf Willow Lane. I remember that street. I had a lot of clients on there. So what I realized, there was a big mentality difference between wealthy people and, and people that weren't wealthy. Um, and part of that was that wealthy people actually respected salespeople. Like, People that didn't buy, they said, yeah, I get what you're doing. You know, that's cool. Like, like you're making it happen. You're hustling. They really respected the personal responsibility that I was taking um, because they saw that I was a student that was working his ass off. Like, that's what they saw, right? Yeah. Um, whereas people in lower socioeconomic areas, they didn't necessarily, like, the overall, I'm not saying every instance, but generally it was like, oh, I hate salespeople. Go away, you know? Um, they, they didn't see the effort and the personal, they're like, why don't you get a real job? You know, why are you knocking on doors? Get a real job. Um, and that was very eye-opening for me, like like to see that successful people really thought differently about entrepreneurial efforts. So as an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur in the making during this time, what is the biggest take, you, you, positive take you got from the door-to-door knocking experience that kind of helped you uh, moving forward? That basically like um, everything that we're taught as children by our parents is on a social like scale is sort of wrong. What I mean is, you know, we talk about not talking to strangers, but if you want to be successful, you got to talk to strangers, you know? Um, We might have have a perception that sales is not a function of business that's well respected, like you're not a thinker, you're a talker, but the reality is that nobody's more important to a business than a salesperson. It's the most important profession. Their accountants don't have jobs until a sale is made. Delivery people don't have jobs until a sale is made, right? Um, Nobody has a job until a sale is made. So I, I learned that, um, I learned to really respect what I do as a profession. Um, those would be a couple of takeaways. 
Mm, interesting. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that I'm, I'm, you know, in our organization, we are a sales organization as well, like, like yours. And uh, when I look around me, I see there's no school in the world that uh, has diploma in sales. Yes. Um, which really makes it tough for guys like you to recruit or me to recruit people to work in the sales force. Um, how do you today recruit people? to work on your sales force? Well, so firstly, there are some schools that offer sales degree or diploma, but I think it's sort of oxymoronic, right? Like, how do you teach somebody to be street smart, right? Like you can't, it's like sitting in class and learning to ride a bicycle. Like you can't sit in class and then, okay, now I'm a professional bike rider. It doesn't work that way. Um, mm-hmm. so, so even if schools do offer it, the other problem is that academics and sales are often like juxtaposed to each other. Like they're almost the opposite of each other, right? Like academics is all about thinking and sales is all about action. Right. Yeah. So, so how do you use a thinking man to teach action? <laughs> right? Like it's, you under, and, and I know as a sales guy, you know what I mean when I say that. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, that's sort of that part of it, but how do we recruit? It started with, um, it started with just my friends that I sold books with that I had recruited to that from university. And I said, Hey, you know, if you're done with that, come do this. And a bunch of people, you know, I had really good relationships with people. They said, okay, let's do this now. It's like, it's got more long-term, but you know, long-term scalability, like you can only sell books door to door, you know, long enough until you go nuts. Yeah. Um, but with this, you know, you, but we were building a client base. We had clients that were coming back to us and we had good relationships with those clients. So a lot of it was word of mouth, friends of friends. I mean, that's really how it grew. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, she's, she's, she's got, you know, she's got a law degree, but she was like, oh, what you're doing looks really cool. Can I try it? I was like, no, 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 you don't want to do this. She's like, let me try it. <laughs> And she became very good at it. And I said, okay, this works. And then a couple of her friends, you know, in Europe called me up and said, hey, we're watching you from Europe. We're, you know, there's nothing like that here. We think this would work. So it was a lot of it. It was all word of mouth. I mean, we weren't capitalized, right? Like we never took a loan. We never sold any equity. Like, so everything was, was we generated cash flow in order to grow. So, you know, we were strapped. We were basically just, just surviving and building. Um, And it was that now it's different, right? Like now we use recruiters. We have you know, Michael Page all over Canada, all over Europe, like in, in Hong Kong, we have a very good office now and we have recruiters that work for us full time, you know, and they bring us salespeople to interview. And how fast do you fire salespeople when you realize, um, you know, it's not what the story that I got when I hired them? You know, um, I wonder if you asked that question for your own benefit too, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Right? Well, the sales organizations, you- we're all in the same boat. I, I really like that question. I just sat up in my chair. I just, you know, if you could see, I just went forward. Like, um, this is something I think about a lot. This is something that I write about a lot to myself. Okay. Um, yeah. there, are, there are two problems you can get with this, probably any organization, but really there's two factors you can evaluate a person on. One is their performance, which is where you're kind of leaning the question. And the other one is, is way more important than performance. It's their attitude, right? way way more important like not even close to being as important to performance is the like it's so much more important as attitude so if there's an attitude issue i fire immediately like i've this is a true story i've let four people go this year on their first day at our company Mm. so like the manager calls me and i I call the person i immediately like whoa how did this person make it through we hired a lot of people and i said how did this person make it through the interview person process their attitude is just it sucks ah there we go um (laughs) So, um, and the reason I've learned to let people go, like the worst thing you can have on your team, like people say, well, they have a bad attitude and they're bad at selling. They're the worst. No, 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 no. That's an easy fire. The worst thing you can have is somebody that's good at selling, but has a bad attitude. Like 
like, and I've learned my lesson, you know, keeping people that were terrible for the environment, terrible for the culture of our company. Like they didn't represent the, the ideal standard that we would like to be as an organization. Um, yeah. And I let them stay because they were cat producing cash. And, and I learned my lesson when those people started making, you know, bad unethical decisions, decisions to undermine the company. And, and it probably, you know, undermined some good employees. Like they became cancerous for the culture. And, um, so now, and I and I started reading a lot of books on it. I hired a CEO coach. I remember you telling me you had one, so I hired one. <laughs> and every every resource that was wiser than me told me the exact same. Every book and my CEO coach, everybody said the same thing. You know, if you have somebody with an attitude issue, get rid of them right away. And I, I had to learn my lesson the hard way, and I exactly. learned it the hard way. One of my uh, questions that uh, down the road is supposed to be, do you recruit for character or performance? Character. Huge. Character. 100%. I see. So you recruit for character and you'll teach them the trait. Absolutely. 100% character. Perfect. Um, I'm with you on this one. You know, we all uh, go through our experience, life experiences and we learn uh, sometimes the hard way. Um, so when you kind of decided to, uh, you know, start LGFG uh, Fashion House, what was the biggest personal uh, hurdle or holdback that you had to overcome? Um, and, maybe, and maybe it was before, maybe it was uh, when you kind of started your book business, selling business. I think, yeah, I, you know, I'll tell you this. I think it was letting go of societal expectations. You got to understand, I think that when we have a call like this, in the, in, you know, the context is it's, a, you know, about sales and business. It's about entrepreneurship. In this context, entrepreneurship is a positive thing. In fact, today on social media, entrepreneurship is being pitched to young people as a positive thing. Um, not because it is for all of them, but because whoever pitches it makes money selling them the idea. But, um, you know, 10 years ago, even I was coming out of university, it wasn't like, oh, you gotta, you know, you gotta do that. That wasn't like a super positive thing. Like my parents wanted me to go to law school or to go to, you know, KPMG or PWC and, and, you know, or, or become an accountant or something like to do something that had a guarantee of success to it. This, uh, didn't have a guarantee of success to it. And, Whenever you pursue anything like that, people in your life are like, are you sure you want to be doing that? Like, that's a scary undertaking. Um, so as, as it was with, you know, selling books, as it is with this, it was with this. It was all about um, not really listening to people that had doubts and fears and just trusting in myself that, you know, I believe in myself. I believe I'm going to get this done. Um, and, and that was and I think for most entrepreneurs, that's the biggest hurdle, just um, being 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 unable to see the obstacles that other people see. Um, so you decide to start uh, LGFG. Did, um, did you have a mentor at the time? Did someone influence you to move into the fashion world or it was just an aha moment? It was a very, I would say this was a very business decision. Um, I did know, you know, I did work uh, in a company that did suits for a little bit. So I understood like, you know, what, what the production process was. I also knew that, I wasn't the one to be doing the production stuff. Like, I, you know, I needed a team of experts, like, in that field that could manufacture. Um, so, so, no, there was no, like, outright mentor. Uh, the one conversation that really influenced me is I was talking to a friend of mine who is, like, the smartest guy I know. And, you know, he's, like, a CFA, all that stuff. And, um, you know, uh, like, like, he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And, and he's, like, working for a big bank now, like, in a very high-up position, analyzing companies and and I asked him and I said, you know, if you were me and you were starting a company, what business would you go into? Right. Mm-hmm. And he said this, he goes, you know, he goes, Dimitri, you're, you know, you're a smart guy. 
And you can, you can, you know, at the time I was deciding, do I want to go into business or maybe I want to go into like financial sales somewhere? Like, I don't know, like some, you know, working for some bank or something like that. And he goes, look, you can do something in, in, in like financial sales and, and, or, you know, something to do with that. But then you're competing against other people who are really, really smart. Like you're competing against people that have business degrees, CFAs, MBAs, you're competing and that's fine. That's fine. But that's your competition. He goes, as I, and this guy analyzes companies for a living. He goes, the companies that I see that are the most profitable are the companies where they're competing against a lower level of competition. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, one of the companies I analyze, it's super, pro- like incredibly profitable. The guy does sewage cleanup. <laughs> and I go, I don't want to do that. He goes, exactly. He goes, the level of competition in that business, it's not a high level of competition. He's competing against not a big field, right? Yeah. And so, and so as I was looking at different business ideas and, and companies, I look at suits and I'm like, who's the competitor? And I started going to like men's stores. Then I realized like most guys and, and women, I guess too, but at the time it was just guys that we were dressed and now we do both. But it was like, you know, most guys are buying their suit from a retail person that, that, you know, probably didn't go to university. Maybe they did, but you know, it's not, it's not a very interesting person. Like they're buying from like a career, re- a career retail person, you know? And I yeah. thought, if my, if my competition is a guy sitting in a retail store, I will beat that guy 10 out of 10 times. You know, like that guy's not picking up the phone and calling. That guy's not, you know, I prospect, I used to prospect on the street a lot. Like I would be walking to a meeting. I see a guy in a nice suit. I'd be like, that is a really great suit. Where'd you buy it? Oh, yeah. you know, I bought it the store. Cool. Well, I'm a tailor. Let me grab your card. I'd love to, ta- I'd love to give you a call. And they're like, okay. They, I mean, they, that, that hadn't happened before, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I like the idea of competing against the retail guy because I knew I, I could do better. And, and I'm like, I'm going to be his nightmare. Like that guy's not on the phone 10 hours a day making cold calls. I am. Um, so that was really where the suit thing came. I realized that, A, um, the service was obviously necessary. Like people in the corporate world, you know, wear suits. You wear suits every day. Um, yeah. Men especially don't like to shop. Just don't like to shop. <laughs> right. And, right. And, and my competition was a guy sitting in a retail store twiddling his thumbs. And I said, yes, yes, and yes. Those were my, that, that's when I knew this was the business for me. Perfect. Um, we have to take uh, our second break. Um, our uh, assistant here, Cassandra Hannison, is going to post uh, on our social media a very interesting picture of uh, Dimitri. And uh, when we come back, we will discuss uh, this picture. Uh, If you go to uh, lgfgfashionhouse.com, on the top right end of the screen, uh, you can follow them on uh, Twitter and Instagram, connect with them on LinkedIn, and like them on Facebook. And we'll see you here in two minutes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Uh, welcome back. We are with Dimitri Takshur uh, in Tallinn, Estonia, CEO and President of LGFG Fashion House. And uh, we know Dimitri has a hockey game in 45 minutes, so uh, we'll try to get as much information from Dimitri as possible. Dimitri, can you share with us how you started LGFG in Calgary? Yeah, I um, I'm got to start somewhere, right? So I'm like, okay, well, let's see if this works. This is um, by the way, am I allowed to use client names? of the? Because I remember my clients in Calgary, like, who bought, right? My very a, first day. Yeah. It was pretty, we have no problem. It's up to them. <laughs> well, anyway, so, and I, and I remember this. I was uh, um, on my living room couch. I just got in, and um, I'm like, okay, well, let's do this. So I picked up the phone, and I just started cold calling through. I was, uh, I cold called through uh, Denton's law firm and Blake's law firm, Okay. And I just started calling. Literally, I'm like, hey, I'm Dimitri. I make suits. And I, and, and I schedule. I think I got my first day, I got six guys that are like, yeah, come on in. I'll check you out, you know. Um, here's the funny part. I didn't really plan super well. I just, you know, like the thing about business is I knew already that if I'd spent my time like building a website and sourcing and doing other things, I wouldn't ever sell anything, right? Like I needed to sell first, get the sale, right? Yeah. So the first thing I did is I went in and I, I got the meetings. And my first day, I remember I sold $10,000 worth of suits. Um, and I didn't have any fabric swatches to show guys. I just brought magazine pictures with me (laughs) (laughs) and guys, you know, but I was, but I was well-spoken. Like, you know, they were cool guys. I, you know, we, they trusted me and I I thanked them. I mean, it was, it was a big hurdle to get over. I I then got home with, uh, I had like this notebook to take quote unquote orders and from Staples. I'm like, okay, now I got to figure out how to process their credit cards. (laughs) Right. Like, but that was it. You know, that's where you start, right? Like, what else do you do when you start a business and you don't have any input? Nothing, right? It's like, well, now I know this works. And I remember, like, I'm sitting with a lawyer at Blake's. I won't say who, but you know him. And uh, he places an order for like $6,000 with me. And I'm thinking in my head, like, oh, man, I got to get me somebody that can make me suits, you know? Like, um, and that's, and that's, you know what? And that's, and, and, and whenever people ask me about starting a business now, I say the same thing. I'm like, don't wait, because people waste so much time. Like, let's build a website. Well, you know, our website has to be perfect. Like, no, I didn't have a website. In fact, yeah. the whole first year we did 900, I think, something $100,000 revenue without a website. Um, it was just because, you know, because I could cold call, go out and make sales. And I recruited a friend and I trained her and then she went out and made sales. And that was it. And 
um, you know, it was it was an it was a lot of probably craziness, but that's how it started. And I remember the first month, you know, I probably I don't know, probably had about forty customers I had to deliver. Um, you know, in terms of suit sales, what's interesting, I, I would go and sell myself. I I, I never sold less than about $50,000 in a month in retail, personally selling, right? Like I never sold much less than that. It was always 50,000, 70,000 a month. So like, you know, 80,000 a month. So I had revenue always coming in. Um, and that, and, and that's, and that's where it all started. And eventually as we, you know, started banking some cash, I said, okay, let's deploy this into infrastructure now and make it official, you know? So you describe, will you describe uh, LGFG fashion house as the street fighters of the fashion world? Absolutely. That's where we started without a question. And are you there today or you moved from there? Well, I think today, look, we're, we have offices in, you know, we have uh, offices in Europe, offices. We're opening next week in, in uh, Argentina, Sao Paulo, in, uh, not Sao Paulo, sorry, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Buenos Aires, yeah. Yeah. And, in Buena, and we already have, you know, a couple dozen appointments booked in Buenos. Like before we went, we booked appointments. We have appointments there. I mean, we have sales in 26 countries. We're in Australia, as you'll, I'm sure, mention. You know, we're all across Canada. Corporate, corporately, Canada, we're based in Calgary. Um, you know, we have a huge Toronto office where we do really well in Toronto. So we are still street fighters, but, but we're a lot, I mean, we're, we're a very, you know, we have social media. I mean, we have tens of thousands of followers. We were invited and did, uh, you know, celebrity gifting booths at the Oscars, at the Emmys. Like we're, we're still street fighting. We're still fighting to get business every day. Uh, however, on a, on an official scale, like as a business, we're an established thriving international corporation, which was not the case when I was sitting you know, in my T-shirt at home, cold <laughs> calling Blake's law firm. I see. Um, the reason I say uh, Street Fighters is you don't you you mention offices, but you don't have any stores that I can go and you no. know look at the suits and and shirts, and and you actually still go to either my house or my office or your other client. So that's why I called you Street Fighters. Correct. Um, how important is it uh, to have a mission, a vision, a purpose as a company, especially with the growth you guys had? It's not just important. It's everything. I mean, I, for me, I always have the vision, but I realize that people working in our business, for them to care and to commit their, you know, their very expensive time and very expensive effort um, and their very valuable intelligence and insights to our company, they have to believe that. Like, I'm obsessed, right? Um, yeah. I, I, I can't sleep at night because I'm so excited about what we're doing. Um, you know, my, my signature, my email is just my goal for the next five years for the company. Like I'm, I'm obsessed. And, um, the more people in the company that become obsessed, the more people that, um, that, that produce at a high level that a grow themselves, obviously, I mean, you know, they're going to grow and, and become massively successful. Some people in our company already have and are becoming, um, but also it helps us all because then the mission gets pushed forward. Like the vision of our company, I communicate that vision. Three times a week, we have calls. Uh, you know, we have a, a leadership coach in our company that hosts calls for us. We have one-on-one -on -one leadership training with all our salespeople that I have an outside leadership coach conduct. My CEO coach now works with five of my top executives in my company. Uh, I pay him to work with them because I want them to get that same access in order to develop their vision, develop their uh, their goals. And and I mean, I, I don't know how, what else I can say. It's it's pretty important. <laughs> um. You know, uh, we mentioned before we went for a break that we're going to post a very interesting picture of you, so we have to talk about it. Um, uh, LGFG recently had an issue, I would say, with a client in Australia uh, <laughs> that made the news, I think, uh, you know, all, almost all over the world. All over um, the world. Fox yeah, News, so yeah. I'm not going to say anything. I want you to share with us what happened and how did you deal with it? 
Yeah. And, so, and, and is there a final result, resolution? Sorry. Yeah, sure. So, so the, the what happened, and I'll kind of start there. And, well, let me let me start this way. So, what happened was what made the news. It was of like twenty countries. I got interviewed by IBI Times. I got interviewed by Daily Mail. The whole thing is we sent a lady a shirt. It's one of our very famous shirts with a bunch of dicks on it. Like it's just penises. Like that's the whole shirt. It's just penis. penis it's, they're cartoony drawings of penises, right? And the story went viral. Like she was very upset about this shirt. The story went vi- went viral all over the world. Um, we were very, very famous for about 48 hours. Uh, and I was getting calls and emails from all sorts of news outlets everywhere, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's kind of where your starting point is. Now, let me go back a little bit. So we've been, we'd had this design for a while. And I've been trying to go viral with it for quite some time. Um, and so, and I remember I had conversations with uh, not only friends, but even I remember I went out to a Calgary Flames game one time. I was in town with a couple of clients. And they were asking me, you know, like about advertising. I said, we don't advertise much because it's a waste of money. But I have this idea, you know, and I read this article. I think it was an Edmonton company or something. And what they would do is like um, they sold like what they call a bag of dicks. Like it was gummy bear penises that they would send. Um, And that's their whole business, right? If you don't like somebody or you want to prank somebody, you get them a bag of dicks, right? Yeah. And I said, you know, we should have a shirt with dicks on it and we need a person we can get this with. And so we tried it a couple of times and nothing had happened. Like the person thought it was really funny, but we're like, no, like we're trying to get you to, you know, make it fuss about this, you know. And we even produced a movie about our famous dick shirt, which we put on LinkedIn. It's like a funny movie. We talk about how LGFG is advancing the industry. We're amazing <laughs> for the garments industry. And and then at the end, it's like, and what is, why are we amazing? And it's like, it's revealed that we're just talking about our famous dick shirt. Yeah. And it was funny. We got comments, but it didn't go viral. So anyways, um, so we had a situation, you know, we have a, a fantastic office in Perth, Australia, and the guys there do a fantastic job. They're just amazing to work with. Um, and this lady had um, complained that she she wanted her suit to be made tighter. Like, that's all it was. She's like, I want my suit to be tighter. And my tailor there said, no, you don't want it tighter. That's not going to look good. Just trust me. I'm a professional. Anyway, so she takes the suit to a tailor that's not our tailor and gets it adjusted, ruining the suit. And then comes back to us and says, I want a refund. And and so this came to me as president of the company because my rep said, hey, I can't deal with this anymore. She wants a refund. She goes, but I didn't do, I didn't work on the suit. Like she wants a refund for messing up her own suit. And, you know, and here's where I kind of had to draw the line and say, look, um, you know, we do have this shirt fine, but realistically, like, you know, pe- some people think it's, you know, client first in a business. It's not, it's employee first. Like if you believe in your, in your employee, my job is to make sure that my employees are first of all treated fairly, are happy, are growing and thriving. And if they're happy, I believe the client will be happy. That's my philosophy, right? So I take care of my employees first. So I said to my employee, I said, let me talk to this lady. And I emailed her. I said, what's the issue? She said, you know, I can't wear the suit. It's unwearable. I want my money back. And I replied and I said, you know, my information tells me that you can't wear the suit because you had it altered outside of our advice and without telling us and it was done independently of us. And whoever did the alteration ruined it. So I don't feel we're, you know, you're entitled to a refund. Just fair is fair. You know, like if we did it, we take responsibility. We didn't do this. And she emailed me back and said, no, it was you. I never had it altered anywhere else. And she was a lawyer. She said, I'm taking you to court. I'm going to sue you guys. And I said, you know, before I replied, I called my rep. I said, are you sure that she had it altered somewhere else? And the rep said, yes, absolutely. And I emailed the lady back and said, go ahead and sue us. I said, you know, we're clean on this. Anyway, so Perth isn't a very huge market. Like it's got only a couple tailors. It was not hard for us to find the tailor that did the work on her suit. Actually, we found him within the first day. And the yeah. guy said, yeah, I did that work on that suit. And he said, and I told the lady not to get the alterations done because I told her it would ruin her suit. But she insisted and I did it. I said, okay. 
would you give us a signed testimony of, you know, an affidavit? That's what you just said. He goes, yes, I would. And so we came to court prepared with a signed affidavit um, that we, in fact, did not alter the suit that somebody else did against our advice and against even their advice to this lady. Okay. So yeah. she had effectively lied. You know, she, she said that we did the work, but we didn't. It was not us. We had a signed letter proving it wasn't us. Um, and so we knew that at least ethically and morally, we were in the right position. Um, and that's, and I felt good about that. And that's why we went forward. And I also felt it was unethical of her to use her status as a lawyer to threaten us with legal threats, you know, when, when she, she knew she was wrong. Anyways, um, we decided we're going to settle, uh, because we, you know, we did make the original suit. I said, I'm going to give you 50% off on the suit. Okay. Yeah. She goes, I want 50% off and I want some shirts. And uh i said and that's where your opportunity and came and i go oh my god this is the one and I knew it because I'm like, you know the, like, she had a lot of you know she obviously had a lot of pride which is fine i'm like i don't think she's gonna back down from this i said okay and so and so she asked for five shirts we agreed we sent her six and the sixth shirt was the shirt with dicks on it right <laughs> so she goes on linkedin immediately posts the picture says look at she goes you know i sued them and this is what i get as the shirt and i said that's not what happened I said, you got this shirt much later than that, you know, and then she goes, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. I know she kind of starts claiming some stuff like, well, it's uncool. It's not blah, blah. I said, okay. And then some of her friends like, well, I'm going to go to the newspaper and tell them about this. And I replied, you wouldn't dare, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, 15 minutes later, I was being interviewed by the Perth now something, like some Perth paper or something, right? Um, So the outcome of this is on the first day, the story went viral. We sold 54 penis shirts. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> including, and Dave, I won't say who, including some people that you know uh, in Calgary that emailed me to order the shirt immediately. <laughs> I um, see. We have, we have since, I have just ordered stock for 500 more last month because we sold out of the fabric completely within about four or five days. We completely yeah. sold out. Um, I had hundreds, of, our website almost crashed because we had hundreds of inquiries about buying the shirt. <laughs> our... Our sales spike uh, on, on just on that shirt alone, our sales were like 654% like growth week over week. Like it was just boom, boom, boom. And on, top, and on top of that, our recruiting, like we keep, you know, we have online applications. Uh, our, not, our online applications for the month spiked 300%. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> so what that means is, you know, we're recruiting people generally like right out of university, like, or it's usually their first sales or second sales job. So like our target recruiting market, you know, we're recruiting a lot of 24, 25, 23 year old young people that are coming into sales, right? Our demographic, the person we recruit loves this because it's viral disruptive marketing and they're not, they don't have to tell their boss, oh, that's not cool. They just thought it was funny. Yeah. So, so, you know, the applications to our company spiked, like people were literally from all over the world. Like I want to work for you guys, A, because I think it's so funny and B, because you stood up for your employees and I respect that. And then uh, a, a couple of universities picked this up as a study. And a case they, study. Case study, yep, 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 in Australia. And they came back to us and said, you know, our students were doing a case study on the story. They said you got about a million to $2 million of free marketing from this story. Uh, and, and so it was probably the best thing that's Happy. maybe ever happened to us from just a, <laughs> from just a position of, of exposure. 
Um, Dimitri, we are nearing uh, the end of our show today, and uh, I think we could not have ended it with a better story than the one we just heard from you. And, and uh, you know, I, I like the fact that you uh, support your your employees. I like uh, the fact that you do, t- don't take bullying as a company owner. Um, uh, we sometimes uh, try to kind of appease everybody, not for the right reasons. So I would like to thank you for sharing your story, ideas, thoughts. I think I have another probably 15 questions for another hour. Um, I want to remind our listeners to log into your website, www.lgfgfashionhouse.com, uh, and stay updated with business fashion trends. Um, by the way, I would like to share with you that uh, on this Saturday, it's the first time in my life I'm going to wear a, t- a tux. Uh, my son is getting married. Um, next Tuesday, we're back in Canada. I'll be hosting Walker McKinley and Mark Brockhart, uh, co-owners of McKinley Burkhardt uh, Architects. We will learn about their partnership as well as their work. I want to thank you all, and I'll see you here next Tuesday. Have a great and prosperous day. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. Please join David Wallach again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, make your week as great as you want it.